Welcome to All Sides with Anna Staver. Craft breweries are popping up all over Ohio. In 2011, the Buckeye State had about 49 breweries, and that included big name operations like Miller Coors. Today, there are 430 craft brewers alone, with more on the way. There's one in almost every county, but how many independent breweries can our state support? That's not an easy question to answer, nor are questions like how to manage the rising cost of ingredients, the trend towards hard seltzers, or whether Ohio's distribution laws harm independent brewers. Here to help me with all these questions is the executive director of the Ohio Craft Brewers Association, Mary McDonald. Welcome to All Sides. Thanks for having us. And the owner of Land Grant Brewing, Adam Benner. Welcome. Thank you. And finally, the owner of Wolf's Ridge Brewery, Alan Duzer. Did I say that right? Suter. Suter. Good morning. Glad to be here. So craft brewing has had this like meteoric rise since the 2010s, but it seems to have, and correct me if I'm wrong, slowed. Is that is that fair, Mary? That's accurate. Uh, there were 58 breweries when I started in 2013. There were 434 when last we checked. Um, about 40 open last year when historically we've had about 50 open and 20 closed last year, which is a record high for that. So is some of that just pandemic or just market saturation? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, the pandemic definitely had a major impact, as it did on restaurants and hospitality businesses across the nation. Uh, but we're still feeling the after effects. There were lots of government loans and prote- protection programs, um, but interest rates are rising. And people who had an SBA loan who are only paying interest once upon a time now have to pay principal and interest. And that's that's rough. So I want to get into some of the things that have impacted the brewing business with you, Adam and Alan. So I want to talk a little bit about spiked seltzers because they kind of, you know, they've had a moment in the last couple of years. And it seems like a lot of growth in the alcoholic beverage industry is in these crossover products. So now there's Arizona hard iced tea. There is Dunkin' Donuts spiked iced coffee. Even Coca-Cola is coming up with like a fresca mixed. So how are you guys adapting to this? Well, craft beer has always kind of been a, 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 a industry of innovation. Craft, uh, craft beer really is based on innovating new and different kind of products. And uh, some of these are uh, uh, trends that uh, have certainly uh, gone on, maybe even been exaggerated by the craft beer movement. Uh, but people are, um, are going towards seltzers, going towards the ready-to-drink products, RTDs, uh, that are uh, liquor-based uh, type of products. Uh, uh, craft breweries are, uh, are responding by uh, following uh, whatever the consumers are looking for. We, we change the, uh, the products that we're offering. A number of craft brewers are uh, also uh, uh, getting uh, distiller uh, permits and beginning uh, either distilling or contract distilling and creating ready-to-drink products as well. Yeah, but, and yeah. you guys even have that uh, Daybreak, which is like a coffee vanilla stack. So it's kind of got that like iced coffee feel to it. It, it does. It's uh, coffee, vanilla, uh, cream ale. It's it's kind of a combination of uh, an old style. Cream ales were popular before Prohibition and uh, uh, bringing that back and then infusing it with a little bit of coffee and vanilla has been a, a long-term hit for us. Yeah, and even to build on what Alan said, I think craft beer consumers are generally flavor seekers. So they were uh, bucking the trend of historic just mass-produced lagers and looking for beers that had flavors or and so as uh, tastes evolve now people are seeing that you have 
like you said, spike seltzers, other alternatives. So um, if our customers are looking for flavor, we're we're here to, to, to give them that. So Yeah, from like the IPA trend to I've always been a big fan of sour beers, kind of made with the, the fruit that makes you pucker, <laughs> which is not a traditional like mass produced sort of lager style. But That's we also have breweries who focused solely on that, Pretentious Barrel House in, in Columbus, solely sour, sour beers. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, so we kind of talked about it a little bit, but uh, Adam, I kind of want to get your take. Since innovation and newness are hallmarks of like microbreweries, um, and I think it's probably because it's easier to experiment in small batches, but has that come with some pressure? Like your customers are always expecting something new and different. Yeah, it's. Uh, uh, I always say, you know, I mentioned the craft. Uh, craft beer drinkers are flavor seekers, but they generally have ADD with their uh, <laughs> with their preferences. And it is a it's a it's an interesting balance because you have customers. They're they're a lot less brand loyal. They may have been historically where you only drank one beer uh, from a certain brewery. Yeah. And, and now a lot of people are more style loyal they might love ipas and so they're going to try every ipa that's out there or they love sour beer and they're going to just go down the aisle and buy specifically sour beers and you have to balance that because there's also there there is a contingent of people that will say i only drink this ipa and it's always in my fridge so you have to balance having to produce all this newness but also staying relevant with brands uh, because that also uh that uh, especially at the sizes that that Alan and I are at where we're selling in the grocery stores, when you're at a greater volume, it makes it a lot more costly to continue to come out with new new brands as opposed to leaning on a core subset of brands. Do you guys ever balance that? Like, will you have things on tap that are not going to be in the store? Yeah, that's that's the benefit with, with the tap rooms that we have, that, that we can uh, really kind of let let the brewers flex their muscles and, and show their creativity side and, and try new things. And sometimes those 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 batches uh, sell out very quickly and end up turning into larger batches that end up getting put in cans. That's how our daybreak that you mentioned earlier got started. It was a very small batch that we did just in the tap room, and uh, it ended up being uh, very popular and now is one of our flagships. I also think that craft beer is more of a sensory experience. Like, you should sniff it. You should sip it. You should probably not chug it down as fast as you can. And I don't know if it's fair to compare a bit to wine tasting. Absolutely. One of the one of the uh, early experiences before I got into craft beer that I had was uh, uh, with a neighbor of ours who was a faculty member at OSU, and the faculty club would do uh, wine-pairing dinners about once a quarter, and uh, I learned in that wine pairing uh, uh, session at the faculty club how to really appreciate the flavors of the various products. Uh, so you'll see uh, craft beer is very much in line with that. Also with coffee aficionados, you know, I, I, uh, I uh, hate to admit, but I'm a, uh, I, I make a pour over coffee every morning because it just gives you a little bit more flavor. I do French press. Mm-hmm. We just had Randy Mosher at our conference, uh, and he's coming out with a whole whole new book called Tasting Beer and the science behind it. Oh, neat. So there's definitely a lot to that. Yeah. I was looking at some of the different beers that you guys offer and the Winter Garden at Land Grant. I mean, just the way it's described as bursting with notes of apricot, mango, orange peel, and pine. I mean, yeah, it sounds like the way someone might talk about wine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting. The the uh, the amount of flavors that you can pull just from three simple ingredients with, uh, with yeast, uh, uh, the different types of barley we use and then the different types of hops so they 
complete different spectrum from tropical fruits all the way to floral and citrus you get from hops and coffee and and even bitterness notes that you can get from certain types of malts uh so it's 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 similar to wine but it can actually be a lot more complex and i don't think a lot of people uh that are outside of beer realize that um and it's it's an exciting journey and, you know, before the show, we were actually talking about some of the challenges with getting hops, um, particularly as it relates to wildfires out west. So what what's happening there? Why is it harder to get good hops? Well, it's, it's hops are uh, one of the ingredients that are a, a key component of the flavor profile of a beer. And hops are also a naturally grown ingredient. So they're going to vary. Uh, you know, the terroir is uh, just like with wine is going to affect it. The weather patterns are going to affect each individual uh, uh, crop and uh, you know and the, of course the different varieties some of which are proprietary varieties and some of which are more uh, generally available uh, uh, but it can also affect the availability so we've seen in the years Adam and I started about the same uh, time uh, with our breweries and we've seen ups and downs in availabilities of the different kinds of hops what we typically as a as an industry will do is if Northwest uh, U.S. hops are uh, uh, less available, we'll go to New Zealand. We'll go to European oh, wow. uh, kind of kind of hops, and and uh, we we adapt. And luckily, because of the nature of our beer, it's not not like we have to have the same exact flavor profile every single batch of beer. Uh, we can we can be a little bit more creative, and we can adapt to whatever's available. And I have to give a shout out to the Ohio Hop Growers Guild because Ohio was one of the premier. Uh, there was so much hops and barley grown in Ohio pre-prohibition and then that kind of all died out and now it's coming back. Yeah and I think that's um, I know both Mary Allen and I have gone to Washington DC and and talked to our legislators to continue to invest in hop research. A lot of hop research historically was done by the Department of Agriculture and that's where you got a lot of these uh, varieties that that we we all use in our beers and a lot of that has become private and proprietary and so the, the access to a lot of those hops are restricted. And um, with with that funding, they'd be able to continue to innovate. Uh, that helps our industry tremendously as well. Yeah, and Mary, before we uh, got on the air, you were talking a little bit about wildfires. And what I found completely wild, wild about wildfires, um, what I found really interesting was that even if the field doesn't burn, it can pick up the smoke and that'll change the flavor. Yeah, it'll... They, they will inherently pick up that smoke flavor. There were studies done uh, that I saw at one of the MBAA uh, presentations. And so, yeah, those unless, you don't intentionally want the smoke flavor unless you're trying to create, like, a Buchan Rock, like right. Wolf's Ridge does. Rauch beers are a traditional style from uh, Bamberg, uh, Germany area. And uh, even a, a Rauch beer is a very polarizing kind of a style. People either love the smokiness or they hate it. And inadvertently adding smokiness to your... Uh, floral IPA is probably not a, uh, something <laughs> that you want to want to do. Yeah, I want to talk about some growing pains in the bigger craft beer companies. So, I, I when doing in preparing for this show, I noticed there's quite a bit of changeover in leadership at some of like the really big craft brewers, like New Belgium, Rogue, Rheingeist. Is this sort of indicative of just growing pains more generally? I think any industry has changes in in leadership, and you're as a craft beer industry, we're constantly evolving, and I think that's just indicative of that. Some of the, uh, uh, you mentioned Rogue and, and uh, New Belgium, some of those uh, breweries have been around for 40 or more years. Uh, so some of that is just a natural transition of a 
uh, entrepreneurial business uh, environment where the, the founders uh, get to a point where they say, you know, I'm, I'm ready to do something different, uh, retire or whatever, uh, and they move on. Uh, but the uh, industry is also maturing. So you're seeing what you typically see in, in terms of a maturing industry, which is a little bit of consolidation and, and uh, uh, changes of ownership. Yeah, and a lot of those places used to be independent, but are now owned by major companies. So I used to live out west, and I used to enjoy Lagunitas, and then they sold to Heineken. Um, but I kind of feel like maybe the age of big checks for small breweries is behind us. Yeah, you've definitely seen seen the slowdown with that, and um, it, it's an interesting... Um, I have this conversation with a lot of people when... People don't realize that that Lagunitas is is owned by a multinational corporation or uh, or New Belgium, as we talked about. They're owned by um, is it a Kieran? Yeah. yeah, Kieran out of uh, Japan, and so Four founders and and so you have a lot of that, and we're sold on the same shelf, and the consumer sees it as craft beer, as they were historically independent, but they have the resources and backing behind them that us small businesses don't necessarily have. Kind of the analogy I use when you walking down the paint aisle at Home Depot, you don't look for the paint that's made locally down the street from you. Uh, but that's that's similar to what we're, we're uh, competing against. Those grocery stores, we're competing against folks with, with budgets that uh, pale uh, our entire uh, revenue on the year just for their marketing efforts. Yeah, we're not going to see a land-grant ad during the Super Bowl. And probably not even during like a Buckeye game. So, how how do you guys manage advertising on a smaller budget? Let's say uh, it's a, it's a challenge, of course, uh, with anything we do. We we uh, for the most part rely very heavily on social media. Uh, we're able to kind of control that, and uh, fortunately, that's also a, a, a avenue that a lot of people see a lot of uh, advertising. Anyhow, uh, we're able to to, to uh, direct the social media pretty specifically. Uh, and where we can, we'll, we'll put uh, print uh, or billboard kind of uh, 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 publicity out there. And you guys also did that uh, Brewing Hope partnership with uh, different charities last year. So every month you guys were donating to a different charity. So you do those like kind of community partnerships. Charity is a big part of the whole craft beer movement. I think one of the things that you'll see is that just about every brewery out there has uh, has some kind of a program in place for uh, supporting local initiatives, many of which are driven by uh, um, uh, interests of our employees, and we're trying to support those, and then, of course, with our customers. Uh, but we try to be that supportive uh, public meeting place where we can bring people together and and, uh, uh, and support any issues. Yeah, it's a, it's a extremely collaborative industry, and so we, we do rely on our partners to help help uh help get the word out there about us but we that we also lean on that as well to uh help help bring awareness to 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 local causes and um and the community and i think for both alan and i and something that if you look at why there are 430 breweries in ohio is the ability to get someone in the door and and meet us and see that you know we're actually we are small businesses and real people behind it and if you come to our spaces that's going to help win you over when you're going down that grocery aisle and, hey, I had a great experience at Wolf Ridge or a great experience at Land Grant, and you remember that and you're going to pick up our beer. Yeah, and you also try to create the experience at your breweries because I was looking up, you guys have a winter garden right now, which has curling, igloos. I'm not sure what ice bumper cars are, but <laughs> uh, that idea of creating reasons to come and hang out. Exactly. It's 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 uh, 
you know, consumers these days are looking for experiences and we, we joke, we're fortunate. We're, we're in Franklinton, you know, near the uh, inner urban core, but we do have a lot of space. So we essentially have a private park that you can, uh, you can come and enjoy and, and also have beer at. And so, uh, at, we've kind of turned it into a four season opportunity. It, it's, uh, it's very weird being in Ohio cheering for cold weather and uh, cloudy skies <laughs> a day like today when it's 50 degrees and raining isn't great for ice. But um, yeah, the ice bumper cars were new this year. They're they're just they're, they essentially are like if you ever do, have done bumper boats. Oh, okay. Uh, but they have wheels and they they go on the ice and uh, it's a it, it's a lot of fun uh, and. Uh, you know what? What I think probably the only car you can operate after a beer. Or yes, two. yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the, even if you're a little too inebriated, you probably won't want to get you'll uh, you'll get bumped around a little too much. So, but it's uh, it's it's definitely a, a a great opportunity to come out. And I think you know we've realized that folks don't like being cooped up in their house uh, all winter, so it gives an opportunity to come outside and and really have that gathering spot, as as Alan said. Also, brewery visits uh, over the last five years have actually gone up about 8% nationally. So people are looking for that neighborhood adventure. They're looking for adventures like they can get at Land Grant or a place to get together. Uh, it, it, you know, And breweries are serving that function pretty well. I'm the stats lady. I was just going to say, based on our 2022 economic impact study, that the 170 breweries answered gave $2.4 million in donations and 22,000 volunteer hours to their communities. Oh, wow. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about one law in particular that Ohio craft brewers are lobbying hard to change. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to being? If you want to do something, then just do it. Just take that first step. Great advice every week. Listen to LifeKit from NPR. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staver. It's been nearly 50 years since the franchise law, which governs how breweries get their beers onto local shelves, has been updated. And Ohio's craft brewers say it's well past time for a change. Still with us is Executive Director of the Ohio Craft Brewers Association, Mary McDonald, the owner of Land Grant Brewery, Adam Benner, and the owner of Wolf Ridge Brewery, Alan Souter. Got it right this time. So, Mary, I'm hoping you can walk us through how this law, which is the Ohio Alcoholic Beverages Franchise Law, whew, how that works and why it's structured the way that it is. Sure. The Ohio Alcoholic Beverages Franchise Act was passed in 1974. For a little history, at the time, because of consolidation post-prohibition, there were 116 breweries in the entire United States. And there were about 200 mom-and-pop wholesale beer distributors, uh, as we know them, in Ohio. And each one of those wholesale beer distributors, right? <laughs> Yeah. Each one of those distributors was representing one, maybe two brands in a geographic area, probably a couple counties, right? So like Coors would have a distributor in Cincinnati and then they'd have another distributor in Columbus. Right. Okay. So a family represented a brand in that market. And the big breweries, because again, there's only 116, they're all over the United States, um, they would 
they tended to, I'll say, bully their wholesale representatives, right? And you're going to do this, or if you don't, I'm going to take my brand and I'm going to go to another family and then you'll be out of business. And so in order to protect their businesses, they got the Ohio Alcoholic Beverages Franchise Act passed. And basically it creates an evergreen contract with your wholesaler. Those contracts automatically renew. Um, You have to prove just cause in a court of law to get out of them. And while you are trying to prove just cause in the court of law, you're still with that distributor. And the only mechanisms other than that are um, transfer of ownership, either by the manufacturer or the wholesaler. So if someone sells, you can change wholesalers, but there's still going to be a payout to the wholesaler for the fair market value of that brand. So basically, it's almost like you're getting into a long-term marriage with your distributor. It's easier to get a divorce in Ohio than it is to get out of your distribution contract. And so why why do we need to change this today? I have a feeling I know what you're going to say. Well, the landscape has flipped and had done a complete 180 since 1974, right? There were no craft breweries in 1974, not in Ohio, not anywhere. And now we have 400 and some small breweries in Ohio, not to mention 9,000 some in the United States. And the wholesale, um, the wholesale faction has consolidated. So whereas we had 200 mom and pop businesses, this is such a effective policy that they bought each other up, and there's now effectively about 27 distributors in Ohio. And so they wield all the power over the small breweries. Um, but And so what we're looking to do is exempt breweries under 250,000 barrels from franchise law. We just want them to be able to negotiate contracts like they do for every other aspect of their business. We don't want to touch the distributors' relationships with their big um, manufacturers because we believe that with the Heinekens of the world, correct the Heinekens and the Anheuser's and the Molsons and the Coors. Um, we we want them to save that relationship. We believe it's appropriate there, but we don't believe it's necessary for the government to interfere in a contract between a manufacturer and a wholesaler at this level. Does it feel like an imbalance for you guys that, like, when it comes to your distributing contracts? Well, sure. It's a, a situation where uh, it, it, we have a, absolutely no recourse if there is an issue. And it could be uh, something as simple as a change in a business model for a wholesaler that triggers a difference in the way that we're uh, uh, going to market. Uh, so it can be innocuous, uh, but it could also be something where maybe they bring on a, a brand that we're, uh, we compete very heavily with and, and now we uh, lose uh, space on the shelves uh, because of that. Uh, and as a result, we simply want to be able to put a normal contract law into effect so we can agree on terms and conditions when we sign the contract and then abide by those and have the ability to get out of that contract. So the distributors kind of decide where your beer goes and say, the Kroger? They play a part in that. Okay. Uh, we, we, we still uh, have our, like, for instance, at Land Grant, we have our own meeting with Kroger, and we uh, we go down and pitch them on different brands that we're going to have, and uh, we're able to get those placements. Um, certain distributors may do those meetings for their smaller breweries, uh, but that's starting to be a little less at this time. And um, so once once we get those placements, then uh, the distributor helps facilitate get that beer to the stores. And and I think to build even on what what Alan was saying. It, it really isn't necessarily the um, we're, we're not looking for uh, this to be changed. So we have laws in our favor. Uh, we're looking that uh, right now, if, if, if we were to lose uh, most craft brewers are such a small percent of that revenue that's going into that distributor, they're still most the majority of their revenue is coming from 
the 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 large houses the or the houses of the world and and so it makes sense the intention of franchise law was to protect that business that just like if you own a, a an auto dealership or or a McDonald's you can't lose that franchise because you you will lose your entire business if they pull that pull out of that franchise where businesses our size do not have that large of an impact on 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 the majority of wholesalers in the state of Ohio. So how did we land on 250,000 barrels? Because I basically what I'm trying to get at is someone who brews that much. Are they are they really a little guy? Because I tried to do like the math. And is that like six million pints of beer? So 250,000. So the, the Ohio law that created the A1C in 2013, which enabled all of our small breweries to exist, gives creates the A1C, we're at a million barrels of self-distribution. So anyone who produces less than a million barrels is considered a craft brewer in the state of Ohio. Okay. So we went with a quarter of that. And yes, um, 250,000 barrels is still small in the grand scheme of things. So for instance, when Superior Beverage acquired Brown Distributing, uh, they became a 20 million case wholesaler. That's 1.45 million barrels. Mm-hmm. All of Ohio craft beer, including Sam Adams Boston Beer, is 1.3 million barrels of production a year. So you have one distributor distributing more than all of Ohio craft brewers are creating altogether, including Sam Adams, who isn't impacted by this. Oh, wow. Okay. So 250,000 barrels is not a huge operation, even if it's a big number. It seems like a big number, but again, in the scheme of things, if you go to the Budweiser plant in Worthington, they produce 7 to 10 million barrels of beer a year. And the Molson Coors plant in Trenton, in Ohio, also produces about 10 million barrels of beer a year. So either of those breweries, if they're brewing at capacity, can produce all the beer that all of Ohio craft brewers are producing, including Sam Adams, in two months. And if you take out Sam Adams, they're going to produce that amount of beer in one month. Yeah. That's really good context. And, and I think, yeah, as Mary said, it is it is really the context of the entire brewing industry where even for Ohio craft brewers that encapsulates all the, the, the independent craft brewers, except for, except for Sam, Sam Adams. Uh, but I know we produced 7,500 barrels last year and we are, and, and Alan probably is about 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 5,000, about 5,000 barrels. And we're probably the, in the top 20, uh, in volume producers in the state. Yeah. So that's, that's much, that's well below. There's a long tail in craft when you kind of look at the, the large producers and, and, and the majority of those 430 breweries in the state are producing less than a thousand barrels. Yeah. There's only 20 to 25 breweries in the U S that produce more than 250,000 barrels. Um, and the top six of those make up 83% of the U S beer shipments. So the big guys are really, really big and the small guys are really, really small. And we still think 250,000 barrels is a very reasonable number. Because again, these breweries didn't exist when this law was put into place to protect small businesses. And now they're the small businesses being impacted by this law that was created to protect small businesses. So we think it's common sense to fix it. You know, Mary, in your testimony to the Senate, that's where this bill is. It's Senate Bill 138, for those who want to go and look it up. And it would change this law, give this exemption. Um, You talked about some brewers being actually afraid to speak up, that they're getting called from their distributors, telling them to essentially, um, I think the words you used were, put a muzzle on it. Yes. Uh, Alan and Adam are on my board, so (laughs) they have more, (laughs) they have a a responsibility to come and talk about the issues of our organization. Um, But there are... Um, breweries who feel that they can't speak frankly or they will be punished by their distributor. 
How can you be punished by a distributor? Uh, well, you're, you're relying upon them to get your product to market. And they own your product rights in a market. So if you are trying to deliver beer in Columbus and they are your distributor and they decide not to deliver your beer and let it sit in their warehouse, you don't really have a lot of uh, much of a recourse for that. And you can't get out of the contract because they're just letting it sit. In. And you can't get out of the contract. Um, and we, ha- I had questions from one of the centers. You know, well, why would someone just buy beer and let it sit in their warehouse? Well, it's it's called shelving a product. You know, it's either competing with something else, or, or you just you're you're keeping it there because you you want to. <laughs> and the idea, I guess, theoretically, is that it's such a small percentage of your overall profit that you can be petty. Mm-hmm. You can be petty, unfortunately. And we're not saying that anyone's being petty, right. but we definitely have people who are afraid to speak out because they're afraid of the uh, blowback. Yeah, and I, I, I have a we we have three uh, wholesale partners, and we have a great relationship. And I know Alan has has two or three two two uh, wholesale partners, and uh, I think it's the way both of us look at this. It's 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 for. It's our responsibility as board members for the Craft Brewers Association to look out for our members. This isn't necessarily us speaking out against our partners because they do get our beer to market and they and there is a they do serve a, a pivotal role in the in the three tier system. What we really are looking for is let us negotiate bad contracts like we do uh, or good <laughs> contracts like we do with uh, when we're signing leases or we're signing uh, other business agreements. Um, we're not looking for just any any sort of favorable treatment. Just allow the contract to, to be enforced as it's written. Yeah. Why does a multi-million billion dollar company need protection against a small craft brewer? Well, we're going to have uh, someone from the Wholesalers Association on in the third segment, and we'll make sure to ask him that question. <laughs> Yeah, they're afraid that breweries are just going to walk away from, and that's not what we want. No. We just want them to have some skin in the game, right? We want them to have some negotiating tactics to be able to get their beer to market in places they need it to go. Well, contracts, I mean, can end in litigation, even the ones you can get out of easily. Absolutely. But everything that the wholesalers are afraid would happen could be mitigated by a contract. Are you afraid they're going to walk away without a payment? Well, then write in what the payment terms are if, if they walk in two years or four years or six years. All of that could be mitigated by a contract. We sign a lot of contracts in the course of doing business. I'm, you know, uh, I've got three different locations I'm leasing. I have uh, contracts with suppliers from uh, grain and hops to... Uh, uh, to, and I'm sure uh, there's clauses packaging. there if they don't Absolutely. deliver the hops. And, and things change over time. Uh, sometimes a, uh, a supplier's uh, uh, focus changes. Sometimes they bring on a different product and move in a different direction, and they can no longer support you as well as they can, as, the, as they used to. All kinds of different things that can happen in the normal course of a relationship over a number of years. Uh, and having the ability to uh, pursue that. Uh, uh, the option to get out is is all we're asking for and, and put it in the original contract that we sign, which we do all the time. And Anna, this doesn't impact any contracts that have already been signed either. So it's just looking forward to future contracts being signed. There's breweries that won't sign a contract with a distributor because they've heard that you're stuck and they've heard some horror stories from their peers. And so this would actually put, I think, more beer into the wholesale distribution market if we can fix this law. Can you distribute on your own? Absolutely. Okay, so if you're a small brewer, you can go to Kroger and work directly with them. But you that's got to be a, a heavier lift. 
It, it is a heavy lift. And one of the things, uh, the, the common sense uh, reasons why we would want to work with a wholesaler is because the wholesaler represents a number of brands. They can send one rep in to... Uh, Talk about uh, 10 uh, beers. Right, exactly. So they're they're able to put a lot more feet on the street than, than uh, we can. We have uh, wholesale uh, distribution, uh, uh, self-distribution here in central Ohio. Uh, we have uh, four salespeople in that territory, whereas a, uh, a wholesaler might have 30, 40, or even more in the same area. And they might have those relationships, too, that open doors. Say, I've worked with this person at Kroger for a decade or two decades. Absolutely. They're critical to getting into convenience stores. We, we can't get into convenience stores because they want to deal with one truck, not 25 trucks. Yeah. That and you sense. mentioned them talking about one to 10 beers. Uh, Heidelberg Distributing represents 18,000 different brands. So That's a lot of brands. That's a lot of brands. And so when we're- That's a as, long meeting. As small as craft breweries are, they need to be able to find the distributor who's going to work best for them. And that might not be the one they signed on with originally if they only had 100 brands to start, right? Back in the back in the 1970s, they probably had a dozen brands. Now in the 90s, they had hundreds of brands. And now currently they have thousands of brands that they represent. So we're getting to the end of our time together. But before I let you go, Alan and Adam, I want to ask for what's your favorite beer right now and what's your favorite beer from each other's breweries? Oh, my favorite beer right now is uh, is whatever we're uh, coming out with new. We just uh, came out with a hazy that I, I uh, uh, am very fond of, uh, and that's the thing about craft beer that'll change over time. But I, I like what's Adam's. in the hazy. What's in the hazy? It's just a uh, uh, kind of a uh, melony, citrusy hop profile with a, a good, uh, uh, not too uh, heavy uh, uh, base to it. So it's a very drinkable hazy. Uh, mid-range alcohol, so it's not uh, not one that you uh, have to worry about uh, driving after you drink, and it's just <laughs> a very comfortable beer. Uh, and as far as uh, land grants, uh, the Osher uh, beer that they put out is one of my favorites from them. You have to say it right. Osher. <laughs> Osher. <laughs> very Midwestern. Yeah, so um, I'm a huge uh, lager and Pilsner fan, and we have a our, our current Pilsner is called Penny Round, and uh, I had a pint of that last night at the brewery, so uh, excited when that comes out. Uh, but the already mentioned daybreak, I, I said that earlier when we were talking, when, uh, when I do see that on tap, I'll, I'll always order it when I'm out around town. If, but generally I don't get out much since I'm at my brewery <laughs> most of the time. So, uh, it's a delicious beer and, uh, you know, well-deserving of the, of the praise and the awards that, that y'all have got for it. It's one of the best beers in the world, according to the world beer cup. Do you have a favorite? They're all my children, so I do not. But if any of your listeners would like to support us, they can go to ohiocraftbeer.org forward slash freedom, and it'll send them to a link to contact the representatives to support craft brewers. That was Mary McDonald, Executive Director of the Ohio Craft Brewers Association. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. And then we had Adam Benner, President at Land Grant. Thank you. Thank you. And Alan Souter, Co-Founder and Head of Wolfred's Brewery. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're talking with the Wholesalers Association. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News.
This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to being? If you want to do something, then just do it. Just take that first step. Great advice every week. Listen to LifeKit from NPR. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staber. It's been nearly 50 years since the franchise law, which governs how breweries distribute their beer to stores, has been updated. And Ohio's craft brewers say it's well past time for a change. This has culminated in a political battle over a new bill which would create an exception in the franchise law for craft brewers. Here to explain the wholesaler's position is Jacob Evans, the Council for Legislative Affairs for the Wholesale Beer and Wine Association of Ohio. Welcome to All Sides. Thank you very much for having me, and I appreciate it. So let's start with the basics. Um, what When this law was written back in 1974, so mm-hmm. about a decade before I came to the planet, yeah. um, the way I, it was explained to me in the last segment is that the brewers were the big guys and the distributors were the small mom and pops. And what they say is it's the inverse now. The distributors are the big guys and the craft brewers are the small mom and pops. Is that... A fair assessment of the landscape change? Well, I think certainly in 1974, that's a very fair assessment of the way the world existed. Uh, today, there certainly are some much larger wholesalers than there were in 1974, but there are also still some very small wholesalers that are only doing craft beer, uh, representing multiple brands. Uh, the other thing I would point out is, like most things in revised code, yes, the original law did pass in 1974, but it's been amended several times since then. So it's not as though this hasn't been looked at, hasn't been touched. You know, there are changes that are made. So it, it I, I believe, has been updated to reflect current reality. But I think what gets lost in this is that there may not have been as many craft brewers in 1974. But under this law, we've seen an immense amount of growth. And that's in part because the big brewers could not hold a wholesaler hostage and say, if you take on this brand, I'll see you later. And we've had some brands come into Ohio that I'm sure some of the bigger brands were not happy about. Conversely, as you have a craft brewer who is working with a wholesaler, we don't want to get a situation where craft brewer says to wholesaler, listen, if you take on that new craft beer, I'm going to find somebody else. And so this law has helped protect craft brewers and allow them to get on the trucks that have Anheuser-Busch, that have Miller, that have Coors, that have Heineken. So they do get that. As they said in the previous uh, segment, you know, our beer wholesalers in particular are very good with the convenience stores because they do want a single truck. And that's part of the benefit that is that is brought to the table with the wholesaler. So what do you make of Senate Bill 138 and this idea of exempting uh, brewers that make manufactured 250,000 barrels or less? Uh, (laughs) I guess that's a very pointed. So what's your take on the question? Um, I don't want to shock anybody. We oppose it. Uh, we, we do not agree with it. Um, it's cliche, but I absolutely think that this is a solution in search of a problem. When you look at the reality of the landscape and how craft brewers have, have succeeded over the last, in particular, two decades, um, to suggest that Ohio law has held anyone back, um, I, I think you struggle to point to anything that does that. But I'm sorry. No, go ahead. The other thing I would say is in regards to 250,000 barrels, that's 3.5 million cases. Okay, it's 3.44444, but 3.5 million cases of beer. That is not a small operation. Uh, I think they said in Ohio there's about 15 people that are in that kind of 
5,000 to 20,000, a couple over that. The largest craft brewer in Ohio does 135 to 165,000 barrels of beer. So 250,000 is a, a huge number. So if you were negotiating this out, it sounds like you'd at least want to see that number come down. Um, uh, certainly 250,000 is not a number uh, we'd like or are comfortable with. Uh, but at this point, um, truthfully, I, I, it's less about what the number is, and it's about this idea that what's being proposed is that if somebody signs a contract, and I want to be clear, they're all signing contracts, and most of the time it's the craft brewer giving the wholesaler a contract, saying, hey, here's my contract. Do you want to sign it? And they negotiate out the terms in that. They say, okay, let's focus on this. Let's do that. The other things they talk about are what sort of money are you going to spend in the market to promote my brands? You know, there might be some upfront distribution payments for distribution rights on the front end as well. Wholesaler is invested in this, and that's part of why we have the contract is to ensure that if I'm going to commit this, I need that commitment back. So I would suggest to you that that changing the law cuts off future investment to, to people coming in or those that are looking to grow, but it also then limits the amount of marketing that goes into the existing brands that are out there. So my point being is that changing the number doesn't actually address the bigger issue of pulling money out of the market. So why shouldn't it, you know, one of the things that Mary and the Brewers talked about in the previous segment was that, you know, we write all kinds of contracts for all kinds of things. Um, why why should this one be different? Like, you can go to court for violation of a contract now. Like, if they have a hop, brew, hop grower and they don't produce the hops, you can sue them for breach of contract. And that's absolutely the case here. You can you can sue. There's most of these do not go to court, and that's because over the last decade, a sampling of several of my wholesalers, we've seen over 110 breweries break their contract with their wholesaler, or wholesaler break their contract, and that's a hey, I want to go somewhere else, and they say, okay, great. How do we amicably part? Uh, this whole thing about it's more difficult to break your franchise agreement than it is to get divorced is laughable. I mean, we have craft brewers that have changed multiple times. This happens, if the wholesaler is not selling the beer, what incentive do they have to stay with that person? If you can find somebody else, good luck for you. So when the two parties sit down on the front end, they can negotiate all sorts of terms. And so this is not some sort of contract that can't be negotiated, nor is it a contract that can't go to court. The reality is, is it doesn't go to court because people get it settled beforehand. And so I appreciate going to court is expensive. Nobody wants to do that. I don't care what the issue is. But they absolutely can go to court. This is going to be a strange analogy, but a lot of folks who work in TV have non-compete clauses in their contract. Like if you leave ABC, Mm -hmm. you can't go to NBC for a year, right? But that's only true. uh, But I see a lot of people in media, what I'm familiar with, move from outlet to outlet. And sometimes it's because they work out an agreement with their station to not enforce that part of the non-compete. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Absolutely. Is that kind of like what you're talking about? Like, theoretically, it's an evergreen contract, but you can come to terms on parting it on your own? It, yes. I mean, I, I'll take exception with the term evergreen. Okay. But yes. No, absolutely. And that's why we've seen craft brewers change. I mean, without pointing to which ones they are exactly, you know, there are many that have spoken up on this issue saying, I don't like it. You know, it's more difficult to, to get out of this. And but they then omit the part that they're on their second distributor. They have actually gotten out of a contract, and they're with somebody else. Uh, so, yes, it's something that's waived all the time. It's discussed, um, and, and parties go their separate ways. 
So how do you think it'll impact the industry if uh, Senate Bill 138 becomes law? So what I talked about uh, earlier was the investment piece. Um, Oftentimes, when a wholesaler picks up a new brand, they will make an investment. That allows the craft brewer to get a canning line, put in another tank, build a tap room, whatever it may be. Extra market. So that's a lot of money. These... I, it can be. Okay. I mean, sometimes, sometimes it's a lot. Sometimes it's a whole bunch. Just sort of depends. But there's also in the contract written in how much we call it a case spend. How much I going to spend per case I sell out in the market? So that way we're marketing your beer, getting it out there. It's not just hey, we're dropping it off. We'll see you later. How do we get people to buy more of this beer? And oh, so, so that's like when I go to a liquor store and they've got like a tasting of a certain beer available or that kind of thing. That absolutely could be part of it. Yes. Yes. And so if all of a sudden these contracts change, there's much less incentive from a wholesaler to put that money in, not having the assurance that, hey, I'm making an investment, just like when you go do stocks, you know, what sort of return am I going to get? And if all of a sudden what's being proposed is somebody could walk away from the contract anytime they want, no reason, nothing, what incentive do I have to put money into it? So I think what you'll see is fewer fewer craft brewers that are able to grow or scale in size because they don't have the money coming in to do it. You know, I think WOSU had a story over the weekend about an individual who's seen increased costs uh, in borrowing, you know, got money during COVID, the rates have gone up. I think as everybody listening recognizes, the cost of goods have gone up. Their costs are going up. It's much less likely that there's going to be money put into the system when they know they don't have that financial support. Couldn't you write that into the contract, though? Like, if we put, if we give you a hundred grand, let's just pick a number that's yep. easy. So, if I'm the distributor and you're the brewer, we're kind of reverse roles here. Yep. And I say I'll give you a hundred grand, but if you break, if you do this or you do X, Y, Z or you leave, you've got to pay a portion of it back. Kind of like sometimes when you join a new company, they'll give you relocation assistance, mm-hmm. but if you leave within a year, you got to give it back. Yeah. So many of the contract, I mean. The case spent, the amount being given, all those sort of things are included in the agreement. They do talk about those sort of things. What the franchise law says, it doesn't say that these can't be terminated. It just says that it has to be for just cause. There has to be a reason as to why you're terminating it, not just because, oh, my gosh, Jacob, why would you wear that red tie with a blue shirt and a black jacket? It's awful. <laughs> you know, which maybe that is a good reason. I don't know. but I think it looks fine. Well, thank you. Thank you. But point being is that just cause is not some unattainable bar. If somebody is upset, they need to talk to their distributor. And generally, if they're upset, it's probably because sales aren't going great, right? I mean, that's ultimately what this comes down to. Guess what? Wholesalers not real excited that sales aren't going great. They've bought the beer, so they've paid for it because Ohio's a cash state. They've paid for it. They need to sell it to get their money back. So if craft brewers not happy, wholesalers likely not happy, they need to sit down and talk. And at that point, maybe they say we need to go our separate ways. And we see it happen all the time that they do. We had a craft brewer that recently sat down with the wholesaler in the last year, said, hey, I'm not happy. You know, how do we go this way? And they said, just give us back this this little area we want or this part of it. Wholesaler said, listen, if you want to leave, that's fine. But we're not going to compete against you in part of our territory. So if you want to leave, you can leave the whole territory, find another wholesaler. Good for you. Wish you luck. Or, you know, we're going to continue to distribute People call that a negotiation. Craft Brewer decided, listen, I, I want to stay with you then. And that was their decision. But they also had the decision to walk away. So this whole thing of it can't be done, 
another example there. And like I said, we've got a list, a running list right now, over 110 brands that have changed at least once. Is there any, just out of curiosity, is there any slippery slope concern to say maybe changing this for craft brewing? Like, would it affect other industries in Ohio or sent like, or is this just like a special carve out for in contract law? Uh, well, I, yes, a slippery slope is one of the major concerns. Uh, what we have seen with craft distillers, another industry that's come along, is that about 15 years ago, there were no craft distillers in Ohio. There was a rectifier uh, up in Cleveland. So the General Assembly at the time passes a law, says there can be one distiller in Ohio. We then changed it to three. We've now removed the cap on it. Originally, we said, if you distill, that's great. You can be a distiller. They said, well, we need people to be able to taste our stuff. Um, so what if we're under 10,000 gallons or barrels or gallons it was for spirits? Okay. They came back a couple of years later. I need 100,000. And now we're talking about a million. And people say, well, that's not that big of a crease. increase. It's just tenfold. That's all. And that's what happens here. The second you say we're going to do it for 2,500, for 1,000 barrels, 250,000, somebody's going to come in and say, I need a million. I need this. I need that. So, yes, yeah, slippery slope is definitely a real concern. And uh, my last question is probably the most important question of the hour is what's your favorite beer of the moment? So I, I very much enjoy beer, um, but... You don't have to pick just one if you've got like a couple. Well, so I would tell you that it's it's light beers. Um, and interestingly, alcohol beverage does not have to have the nutrition information on it. Mm-hmm. And I'm a diabetic, and so I need low oh, carbs. Yeah. And so many beers, I, I don't know, light beers generally are very low in carbs, so it's the best thing I can, I can do. I guess best is a relative term. But <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, love a light beer. Um, got back into Bud Light, but love Miller Light as well, Coors Light. They're all... They're all wonderful and had some craft is now moving towards uh, a lot of light beers and they're great too. Huh. That was Jacob Evans, Council for Legislative Affairs for the Wholesale Beer and Wine Association of Ohio. And that's going to do it for this craft beer hour of All Sides with Anna Staver on 89.7 NPR News. <laughs>